You are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Uh, thank you, guys. How's everyone doing today? Still sleepy from all the turkey in your belly? <laughs> oh, awesome. Cool. Well, um, so yeah, uh, I, I know I don't like encouraging people to go back and listen to things that I've done because that just feels weird, but uh, I, I would encourage you guys, especially if, if this is your house, to, uh, to listen to that, that, that word because it, in it was a prophetic word that, I've, that I shared for the first time about 12 years ago in, in this place about honor being the way that we're going to access revival in our environment. And so I, if this is your house, I would really encourage you to go back and, and listen to that one. Um, I want to first just thank Lauren for being willing to to kind of make room in the schedule to talk two weeks in a row because uh, after this this piece on honor um, about a, about a year ago I felt the Lord ask me to speak on a particular subject and uh, this is this is that that day and got a lot of stuff so it's going to be uh, two weeks in a row so um, yeah so. So yeah, I'm excited for that. Um, and so the, the subject I'm going to be talking about for these two weeks is politics. <laughs> There's a lot of different sounds. Uh, <laughs> a lot of different sounds. Some excitement, some uh, terror, some... Uh, I saw some of your jaws kind of grit a little bit like that as I watched. Before we go into this, um, I just want to pause for a moment. What, what did you just feel in your body just then? Did you feel awesome? Did you feel scared? Did you feel a, a, a sense of frustration that says, he better say this, he better not say that? Did you feel a nervousness, anxiety, something like that? If you did, congratulations, you just exercised the spirit of discernment and felt the spirit of the age. <laughs> Because there is a, a tremendous spirit of division that is present in the world right now that would love to divide really everyone, but especially God's people around these kinds of issues. Um, I, I want to talk today about what the Bible has to say about politics. Um, the Bible has a lot of things to say about politics. There's quite a few things in there. Um, I also want to take a moment just to talk about what perspective I'm coming from. I'm not going to uh, personally give you a list of who you should vote for or really go down specific policies. I, I, I know people who do that, and I've seen value in those kinds of things. What I would love to do today is to exercise the practice of viewing politics from heavenly places um, and to acknowledge the temptation to not do that to instead view them based on our own circumstances, by, based on our own experiences, and not from heaven's perspective. Does that make sense? Um, I, I, had a, uh, I took a Bible as a literature class when I was in college, and one of my favorite classes that I ever did. And the professor said something about this, uh, along the lines of this subject that has stuck with me my whole life, and it's something I've try, tried to do my best to adhere to. He said something to the effect of, if, if you approach the Bible and try to uh, um, engage the Bible based on the arguments and opinions of your day, you are bringing a filter to the scripture and you will inevitably leave 
pieces of God's kingdom on one side or the other when you let your age decide what the, what the, how to categorize the values. Does that make sense? And so what I want to do is, again, rather than try to, again, not look from the categorization of our age, but instead look at what God is saying and not try to jump to conclusions about how we apply that to our day immediately, but instead just listen to what God is saying. Does that make sense? Now, there's a lot of stuff that could be interpreted as, as political things in, in the Bible, quite a few. Um, again, God constantly uses kingdom language for the way that we uh, approach this. That is a political statement. Um, I wanted to really quick just define the word politics because it's something that means different things to different people. Um, and this is not the only definition, but it's the one we're going to be using today. Um, this is from the uh, Oxford Dictionary. It says, uh, politics are the activities associated with the governance of a country or other area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. So politics are the way that we govern ourselves, the rules of the land, the rules that we live by, and it is the argument and discussion between those who would like to achieve power. Tracking with me? Okay. Keep that discernment going as we go. Keep feeling what is motivating you and what is pushing you, what is rising up in you. And also exercise that discernment about what I have to say because I am not the master of everything. I am just someone who has followed Jesus and someone who has been a student of the Bible my whole life. And that's all the authority I'm speaking from today. Does that make sense? We good? Okay. All right, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah. Um, we're going to go here in just a minute, but um, where do you guys live? Georgia, that's true. What's Georgia in? United States of America. Great place. Where is the United States in? North America. Great, where's North America? Western Hemisphere, or also Earth. It is in... The world. So you live in the world, yeah? Are you of the world? <laughs> Jesus said uh, his, his disciples were in the world, but not of the world. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. That means that we are meant to live above what is normal. We are meant to live from a higher place, that we are no longer citizens of this planet or anywhere in it. We are citizens first of God's kingdom and have dual citizenship in the place that we live. Um, and <clears throat> this uh, theme is repeated all throughout Scripture, where we are, again, meant to be people who are kingdom people, who are living from the kingdom, who have been adopted into family. The old person who was born on this planet has died, and you have been born again into new life, into, as a new man, as a new woman, into a new kingdom. Does that make sense to you guys? Sometimes in this, especially in the, one of the spots that this comes up is in 1 Peter. Right at the beginning, he says, you who are fellow exiles, fellow exiles. And he talks about, again, being a distinct people, being individualized people. Why does he use this term exiles? Well, this started with the nation of Israel, and it started here in the book of Jeremiah. So if you would look to the book of Jeremiah, um, the book of Jeremiah is a collection of prophecies, messages, poetries that Jeremiah put out over the course of his life. This is an arrangement of all of these. Um, tradition says that initially uh, the, the prophecies of Jeremiah were actually not super highly valued. He was a bit of an outcast. 
until all the stuff that he started talking about started coming true. And one of those things was that Israel, because of its idolatry, because of the injustice that was within the nation, was going to go into exile in the nation of Babylon. You guys remember this part of the story? And so, as we can look back from the history books, this actually happened in 587 BC. Babylon attacked Israel, and it, um, it, it burnt the city, it ransacked the temple, and it kidnapped people in great numbers and brought them into exile in Babylon. You guys remember that? Now, during that time, there were different groups of people who wanted to respond differently to this circumstance. Some people wanted to revolt against Babylon. Some people wanted to rise up and fight them, and they knew that God was going to help them. They were going to conquer Babylon, destroy Nebuchadnezzar, and everything would be great. There was another group who said, well, we should adapt. We should take on the culture of Babylon, and we should adapt to them. Seems like that might be the only two options, right? All right. Okay, everybody close your eyes real quick. Lord, we just invite the spirit of peace into this room. Lord, we want to be led by you. We want to be led by your spirit. We want to be led by your voice. And we want to submit our hearts and our values to you. We want to see what you're doing. We want to do what our Father's doing. And if there's any play, anywhere any of us right now need to have our mind reshaped to the way that you think, Lord, we make ourselves moldable, not to my hands, but to your hands, Lord, to your voice and to what you have to say. Take in a deep breath, if you will, and let it out. All right, we'll see how many times we need to do that. <laughs> the prophet Jeremiah presented a third option, and it's found in uh, chapter 29. So if you would turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. This is a letter that he sent to the people who were in exile. Um, the first bit of the chapter is him, uh, or is rather the uh, person who put together uh, this, uh, explaining how that letter was delivered to those people. So chapter 29, uh, verse 4, is where his prophetic message to them starts. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encountered uh, that you encouraged them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. It goes on from there. He basically provides a third option. Go and live. Have a family, build a farm, pray for the prosperity of that city. Bless that city, because if it prospers, you prosper. Now, you have to understand a little bit of the language here and a little bit of the conversation at the time. We don't have time to walk through all this in detail. When you go home, check this out. Um, 
in verse uh, 28, and then again in verse, uh, excuse me, in chapter 28, and then in chapter 29, verse 24, you see these other prophets that he's talking about. He calls them out directly, which is pretty baller. Um, but <laughs> he, the first one is a prophet who is saying, to, who is speaking to those people who want to revolt. He's saying, God is going to bring this wicked king down. He's going to be down in two years. God's going to break, it, break the yoke, his yoke, and he's going to conquer him. And Jeremiah is saying, is, no, that's not what God's going to do. You're going to live in exile. It is because of this. But, and then uh, in verse uh, 24, he then <laughs> takes on this other prophet who is basically saying, yeah, go stay there and eat the food of their land. Now, there's a distinction a cultural distinction here between what Jeremiah asked them to do and what this other prophet tells them to do. He says, grow your own food and eat that. And this other prophet says, eat the food of their land. The difference here is that that is him saying, adapt to their culture, do what they're doing. Again, there were many laws around what the God's people were and were not supposed to eat. And this was not just arbitrary rules. These were ways of him identifying them as his people, that they were distinct and different. And it was a picture of the covenant that he had with them. And so one person is saying, we're going to revolt and God's going to help us. One person is saying, um, just go, adapt, be like them, and it's fine. And Jeremiah is presenting a third option, in some ways a more challenging option. He's saying, go, be there, live there, don't revolt, don't fight, but remain distinct. Remain who you are and pray for the blessing of this city. Pray for the blessing of this city. How many of you know we live in an upside-down kingdom? God's kingdom does not function by logic, by rules. This is all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. God, one of the main messages that God brought against Israel was for them to not trust in military might, instead trust in his hand. It was to not serve other gods, to remain a distinct people, to, and that is living differently than what is normal. It was culturally normal to, when you intermarried or when you were, had relations with other countries to allow, to allow temples, to allow idols in one another's countries. That was a way of showing trust and, and mutual work together. And, and God said, no, I don't want you to do that. So how do we live in an upside-down kingdom what does power look like? What is the acquisition of power? How do we present power? How do we influence the world as God's people? Go, have a family, grow a number, remain distinct, and pray for the blessing of the city that you're in. There's probably one figure who, who exemplifies this more than any other, and it was the person who was involved in this very circumstance. It was uh, the prophet Daniel. You guys know him? So Daniel was one of these people that was kidnapped from Israel. He was a person probably of high station because he could read, he was educated, and so he was taken and he was brought in to the very center of Babylon, to the very center of this wicked empire that had captured people. And what did he do there? He grew in influence and power. Well, if, again, if he has one mindset, then it's great. This works out for me. I'm making lots of money. I'm gaining the king's favor. I'm just adapting to the culture here, and this is working great for me. No, that would be doing what the other prophet was saying. That, that is adapting to the culture that is losing your distinctness. 
The other version could be, well, I'm here to cause a revolt. The Lord has provided me access to this king. <laughs> Let me assassinate him so that uh, this, wicked, this prophecy can come true. But that's not what Daniel did. Daniel and his friends submitted to this wicked empire, lived inside of it, yet they remained distinct. And most of the story of Daniel is about that struggle to remain distinct and how that sometimes cost and how that sometimes benefited them. Um, Daniel's an interesting figure because the Bible doesn't hesitate to tell the whole story with regard to the characters in the Bible. It doesn't have a hard time talking about the mistakes that David made, the mistakes that Moses made, the mistakes that every figure does. Daniel is one of a very few figures where there's not really a single bad word against him or a single identification of something that he did incorrectly. It's pretty unique. I want you, if you would, just turn to chapter 4 of Daniel. You know, we know the stories of how um, they tried to remain distinct. You know, they wanted them to eat the Babylonian food. Hey, eat this food. And Daniel said, no, we're going to eat this other food. And, well, if you eat that, you know, rabbit food, then you're not going to have enough energy. You're not going to have a good, good, good mind or anything. He said, hey, I'll tell you what, my people are going to be even more healthy and robust than yours at the end of this. And they said, all right, we'll test it out. So there's a little bit of conflict there. But it works out. They, eat the, they go on the Daniel fast, as it is now called. <laughs> it's now a diet program. <laughs> um, the... <laughs> They go on this, they eat, they eat only the, uh, the stuff that was kosher, and uh, they, they continue to thrive. Okay, that's awesome. It gets a little more intense after that, where it's like, hey, I'm going to build this idol to myself, me, Nebuchadnezzar, because I'm awesome. And uh, what if you all bow down to it? That'd be great. Could you please bow down to this? And some folks that we know named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, uh, no, that's crossing a line. That's, that's going too far. We're not going to do that. And that comes to the point of death. But God protects them, he covers them, and they walk out of a fiery furnace untouched. And so again, there's this picture of this distinctness. Now they took on Babylonian names. They wore Babylonian clothes. So they did connect with the culture. They didn't just resist every single thing. Yet there were these lines that were clear to them that they did not cross and were not willing to cross. Because, and there were the lines of distinction that made them God's people. Does that make sense? I want to highlight one of my favorite verses in the book of Daniel. Um, this is in, uh, again, chapter f uh, 4, verse 19. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He sees this great big tree. It's, all these animals are able to fit under this tree. It's great. And then he sees this tree get cut down. And so he's troubled by this dream. He has Daniel come to interpret this dream. And this, I think, gets to the heart and the key of what I want to capture here. So it's chapter 4, verse 19. Um, then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, that's his uh, Babylonian name, or Belteshazzar, I'm not good at pronouncing Babylonian, um, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. This is after hearing, hearing the dream. And so the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. I'm sorry that I have to give you such a harsh word. I wish this was a word for your enemies. I'm about to deliver a word of judgment. To who? To a wicked king. To a king that one guy prophesied 
God would destroy, God would, God would break his yoke, that God would bring him down. Yet he was able to do what the prophet Jeremiah said, pray for the good of the city that you are in. He actually is showing love and affection and kindness and connection to a wicked king who kidnapped him and had just thrown his friends into a fire. (laughs) The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places and branches for the lords. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down that tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against the Lord my king. The Lord my king. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. We find out later that this very thing happens. He's uh, driven insane, all of a sudden rides out to the wilderness, tears his clothes off, lives like a wild animal for a period of time. Some people say seven years, some people say seven. The way you calculate this stuff can be different based on how you read it, but for a time... Seven times, actually. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, his sanity is restored to him, and he declares the Lord is God of all. And he renounces, essentially, if you go back in the story, which is the sin of pride, the very thing that led him to build an idol of himself. I am the greatest king. I am the king of kings, the title that would have been given to the Babylonian king. I am ruling over all the other kings in the earth. And he submits himself to the Lord and declares that the Lord is the Lord of all. We live in an upside-down kingdom. When I say what God wants you to do, if you live in exile, if you live in a wicked empire, if you live in the world, is to have a family, grow some food, remain distinct, and pray for the blessing of the city that you're in. To some of us, that sounds weak. That sounds like not enough. But because of his faithfulness, Daniel was offered, uh, was given the opportunity to influence a king, to change his mind and begin following the Lord. Because of what he did, Daniel got to serve another king and another king and another. Some of them decided to follow the Lord, some of them did not. But he was in that position again and again and again. I, I like to juxtapose, I've done this before here, and so this might be a bit of a review, but I like to juxtapose this difference, the difference between Daniel with the difference between another prophet, Jonah. 
You guys remember Jonah? We're just going to go through the story quickly because it's uh, very familiar. Feel free to picture the VeggieTales version if you'd like to do that. Um, I think it gets it more right than some versions. But um, So Jonah is given a word to go speak, go to Nineveh and release this word of judgment. And Jonah runs away. We don't know why yet in the beginning of the story, but he runs away. Hops a ship, goes in the opposite direction. Ship, go get some bumpy waters. Everyone says, hey, God must be mad at somebody. And Jonah's like, uh, it might be me. Just throw me into the water. Who cares? You know, throws him into the water. Fish comes, gobbles him up, and carries him in the correct direction. While he's in the belly of the fish, Jonah writes this beautiful prayer poem where he never exactly apologizes, uh, but he does instead say how awesome God is. Um, So Jonah is then coughed up, goes to the city of Nineveh, takes three days to walk across the city of Nineveh, and delivers a prophetic word. Hey, seven days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Just throws out that prophetic word as he goes. To me, this evokes the the laziest release of a prophetic word in history. Um, (laughs) And so then he goes out, sits on the hill, and waits for the city to blow up because that is what we're expecting to happen. Despite his uh, poor delivery of the word, the people respond en masse, the king included. They repent. They even have the cows repent. They throw sackcloth on the animals. <coughs> it's in there. Look it up. Um, they repent and they uh, adjust their, what they're doing. Um, and so then God comes to Jonah and says, hey, what are you doing up on this hill? And... <laughs> Basically, he says, I'm waiting for you to blow up this city. And he said, this is why I didn't want to come here. We finally find out why he ran away. Was it because he was scared? Was it because he, uh, he didn't like the word? Was it, what, what was it? He said, he said, I didn't want to come here because I knew that you were a merciful God. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, the precursor to the Babylonians, and they were brutal. They would go around murdering folks, and uh, if, they, if a city rebelled, they would um, kill every living thing in that city in ways that are not for a Sunday morning to describe. Um, and they were brutal, they were vicious, they were one of the first great conquering empires, and so pretty likely that Jonah had experienced, and anyone reading this book would have experienced harm at the hands of the Assyrians, and probably justly despised the city of Nineveh. But he didn't want to come because he didn't want that city to be restored. He just wanted it blown up. And God tries to bring adjustment to see the thing from heaven's perspective. He says, but Jonah, don't you see that there are people in there who don't know their right hand from their left? They don't know. There's animals in there. They repented too, remember? <laughs> it's in there. <laughs> and he says, don't you, don't you understand? Then it causes a, a plant to grow up over him to give him shade as he's sitting there angry watching the ready for the city to blow up and then one of my favorite verses in the bible the next day it says the lord provided a worm uh, to eat the plant and make it die and once again jonah is so angry <laughs> he says why did you take this one covered away from me it's better that i should die he says that a lot <laughs> um and he says again why do you care more about this plant than you do the people 
that are in this city. And that's the end of the story. When a story has an obscure ending, it has it because it wants you to not just to look at the conclusion, but to think about the question that the story is asking. What question is it asking? Part of it is a story of a person who, we often teach Jonah as a story about obedience. I'd like to propose that it's not. I believe it's a story actually about a transformed heart and what it looks like when you are obedient, but your heart is not transformed. Jonah ended up obeying, but he was so angry at Nineveh, at the Assyrian Empire, that he did not let his prophetic connection to God, hearing his voice, transform the way that he thought. And so he just wanted destruction on his enemies, on God's enemies from his perspective, rather than restoration. He had not allowed the word of the Lord to transform his heart, his way of thinking, his way of seeing. And even when the Lord brought him correction, he still wasn't able to see it. Does that make sense to you guys? When you look at yourself, when you look at the church today on the political landscape, do they sound more like Jonah or do they sound more like Daniel? I'm going to say a couple hard things, guys. If you saw a child of God serving in the middle, middle of whatever political party you don't like, would you call them wicked or would you recognize them as a Daniel? Daniel served the purposes of a wicked king. Do you think that he resisted it? Do you think that he was there to sabotage it? Doesn't say that. He actually said to pray for the good. Does that make sense? To pray for the good. I, I can look at the political landscape and I can find things that I'm scared of. I'm scared of the way that people are thinking. I'm scared of what people, what is becoming normal around sexuality. But if I let my fear lead me, I will want to act like Jonah and want destruction against people rather than the justice of heaven. I will not be able to see with the eyes of a father and see the people around me as sons and daughters of God, even if they don't look like it yet. And genuinely pray for their good, not through gritted teeth. I've been in church my whole life, and I have heard many Christians say, you know, I'll pray for whoever's in office because you want to honor the office. If I'm being honest, sometimes you do it through gritted teeth, and sometimes you do it with your whole heart. And it's whether you agree with them politically or not. Myself included. You will never have the authority to transform something or someone that you don't love with your whole heart. And the absence of love will make your words dry. And you will be rejected, not because you're a follower of Jesus, but because you're not acting like him. I 
I want to tell you a real fast story here just to, just to wrap up. I've shared this before. As Christians, we're invited to do two things, I think, to be active against these things, to, to speak out with regard to politics, to act in a way that brings transformation to our environment. I don't think that that message means that we're just supposed to be absolutely passive and sit around and do nothing. There are two things in Scripture that get emphasized. I'm only going to talk about the first one. The second one, you're going to have to come next week. Um, the first one is a kind of prophetic critique. You're allowed to say the truth. You're allowed to speak the truth and speak it in love. You're about allowed to say what God has said. You're allowed to critique power structures around you that are saying that one thing is good when it's actually not, when God said that it wasn't good. You're allowed to say what God said is good and allowed to say what God called evil. You're allowed to call it evil. Does that make sense? But you can do it like Daniel or you can do it like Jonah. And it requires a transformed heart. I've shared this story before, so I'm going to share it briefly. Um, <clears throat> I was once asked to pray for a girl who was 15 years old who had just been recovered uh, after being kidnapped from, uh, into the human trafficking world. It took the police uh, three months to find her. They were able to track her down. She was three two or three states away. They got her back. And she was in so much pain and trauma that she would hardly speak. I went to pray for this girl with her, with her mother. And I was so nervous because I just didn't want to cause any more pain, any more confusion, any more of anything. And so when I looked at her, I saw this vision of the wounds that she had, how much pain she was in, and it overwhelmed me. When I saw it, it looked like the, the blood from her, her emotional and spiritual wounds was so heavy that it was running down into her shoes. And this spike of empathetic pain that was so horrible ran through me that I couldn't even look at her. But again, this thing inside me said, if I can help in any way, if I can bring any sort of blessing, if I can release any of God's goodness into this circumstance, then it is worth doing. And so I looked that girl straight in her eyes, even though she wouldn't meet mine. And when I did, I could feel the love of a father that was bigger than anything I'd ever experienced before. It was bigger than her circumstance, bigger than her pain, nothing that covered it up one bit, instead something that embraced it, a hug that let the blood run on it, that didn't hold back, that didn't cover it up, that didn't disconnect from what she'd experienced. And in that perspective, she looked as holy, as pure, as healthy as my daughter on the day that she was born. Now, I did my best to share that with that girl, but honestly, she didn't react that much. Years went by, months went by, and I would think about that sometimes. Uh, it, it blessed her mother a lot, and maybe that's all that it was for. And maybe, you know, the Lord is taking all that pain away in one instant wouldn't have been just in, in comparison to the level of trauma and the level of pain she went through. But anytime I thought of any of these things, I could still feel that frustration of all his goodness was right there. <laughs> And for some reason, I couldn't give it to her. So I'd run that scenario through my head once a month, once every few months, for years. And just a little bit ago, I was mowing my lawn, and like I had so many times before, I ran that story through my mind. And as I ran that story through my mind, all of a sudden, I just had this vision 
I remember the whole story. I remember what I saw with the girl. I remember that, that feeling of powerlessness, not being able to release all of that goodness that I felt in that moment to her. And then I saw a vision of a man. And immediately this man that I saw, I knew who he was. He was the guy, the guy who had kidnapped her, the guy who had pretended to be her boyfriend for months and then stole her away from her family and sold her. And I was mad. I was mad at this person. I was mad at the injustice of what they had done. And I was shocked to find that that exact same impossible goodness that had been pointed at that girl was pointed at that man. And I have to be honest, that revolted me. I wanted, if I could have, I would have taken it away from him. I was too angry at what that man had done. It was too despicable in my eyes. I didn't want that goodness to be pointed at him. I knew that that was not right, that that was not correct, that that is not the truth. But I couldn't feel it in my heart. So then the Lord showed me two other people standing behind him, his parents. And in seeing them, I could see what kind of people they were and how they raised him and how they treated him and what they did and didn't give him in his life. And I could see this flow of sin from one generation to another. And while it made me understand this young man a little bit more, I still couldn't bring it in my heart to, to allow, even though I can't allow anything that God does, uh, couldn't, didn't want that goodness pointed at him. But then he showed me each of their parents and each of their parents and each of their parents. And I saw the cascading domino effect of sin rolling down from generation to generation to generation, flowing down that created this person, that, that stacked the deck against this person, that, that, that created the world that this person was born into. And even in seeing this great, you can imagine as it went up and up and up, this inverted pyramid of sin just pouring down generation to generation, even still, I couldn't bring myself to allow, to, 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 to really honestly bring that forgiveness to that person. Even though I knew that I should, even though I could have said those words out loud, my heart still couldn't do it. And in that realization, I heard Jesus say, well, that's too bad. Because that kind of love is the only kind of love that could have helped that girl on that day that she was in so much pain. My inability to love my enemy had limited my ability to love someone who came to me in pain. And I have to accept that and receive that and submit that to the Lord and invite him to transform my heart. Because otherwise, I will try to bring justice by my own power. I will try to bring justice by what I see is right. And that is the temptation of this age, is for each of us to decide what is right. That is the same temptation that was in the Garden of Eden to decide I decide what's good and evil rather than allowing the Lord to tell me. 
it is just as much a temptation for him, for me to decide what's good as it is for me to decide what's evil. The story of the Bible is full of mankind trying to build a good civilization, even God's chosen people trying to build something right. The story is that they couldn't. The judges couldn't do it. The prophets couldn't do it. The kings couldn't do it. The only one who could do it was a Messiah named Jesus. And we, and he is the one who brought that kingdom to earth. And that is a kingdom that is here and is still coming. It is here and it is still coming. And it is only through submission to that kingdom and recognizing our inadequacy in comparison to that kingdom that we can hope to provide any good into the circumstances that we're in right now. Without getting trapped into us trying to decide what's good and what's evil. Our tradition deciding what's good and evil. But instead submitting to Jesus. It's the only way. So the one thing that I want you to leave with here today as we wrap up is in the realm of politics, in the realm of you being a person in the world, you are called to be distinct. You are called to be different. You are called to pray for the good of your city, your nation, your world. You are called to pray for its benefit, its good, its blessing. I do believe you are given two tools there's probably more, but I see two consistently in Scripture to combat, to, to bring action to the spirit of rage. One of them is prophetic critique. If you want to give prophetic critique at the highest level, you need to fall in love with them. And until your heart is transformed by God, transformed by his goodness, you will not be able to speak the truth even when you can see it. It is something I've been humbled by over and over and over and over and over and over again. I'm just going to wrap up in 30 seconds here. Next week, I'll be telling you about the second thing, which I think is even more powerful and even more transformative. All right, if you would, stand up. I'm going to pray for you guys, and then you can uh, go get your kids. Got a prophetic vision. It's time to get your kids. <laughs> Lord, we submit to King Jesus right now in our hearts. We submit to King Jesus in our minds. Lord, we want to walk out, figuring out the details of this, the distinctness. How do we remain distinct? How do we, how do we help one another remain distinct? How can we challenge one another to remain distinct, to, to discover where those lines are? And how do we stand and offer that prophetic critique, but offer it with the same kind of love that compelled the Lord to send his son to the earth to die for it, Lord? T Help us identify the places where we are not yet transformed. Where we are motivated by our own wisdom. We are motivated by our own frustration. Where we are motivated by something less than the goodness of your kingdom. Help us identify those things so that we may see them more truly. Help us look at, with open eyes, with kingdom eyes, areas where we have tried to release the truth and it has fallen on deaf ears. And help us have the courage to recognize the areas inside of ourselves that have not yet been transformed by your grace, Lord. Again, we just submit this to you, Lord. We submit it to your will, and we just ask you to speak to each of us as we continue through our week this week. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. 
To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.